So I titled this entire series, The Final Act. The Final Act, The Return of the King, right? And, and we're, I call this the final act because this is the last book in our holy scriptures, right? The last book in our scriptures where we're talking about something here that's written last. It's the latest, the last book to be written. Um, and, and it's put here in the very end because it talks about the end, the end of the, the stories here, right? And so we know Revelation is indeed an apocalyptic book, meaning it's a book that talks about the end times. And, and as, I, as, we met, as I covered, we, we, this tends to be a confusing book, right? We, we tend to struggle with what these things mean because throughout this book, we find a lot of symbolism. And when it comes to symbols, man, symbols, you can so easily just take it to mean whatever you want it to mean. And there's a danger to that. And yet there's also a right approach to that. And so I, I want to talk a little bit first about how do we come and approach and, and think about Revelation? How do we read it? How do we study it? Right? I would argue that one of the main reasons why Revelation is really difficult for people is because they just don't know the rest of the Bible very well, especially the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament is, is necessary to understand Revelation. Um, give me a moment. This, this clicker is not working. Um, maybe we'll see if this works now. Oh, it works. All right, we're good. Sorry about that, guys. So, yeah, as I was saying, we, we need to know our Bibles in order to study Revelation, especially the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, that's actually where we get most of our prophecies. Right? There's a lot of prophecy given in the Old Testament, given specifically to Israel and to Judah, but the prophecies also include a lot in there talking about the entire world and all the nations. And Revelation, Revelation is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. And yes, many of those prophecies are fulfilled in Christ when he came, and we, we see that in the Gospels. But there's also, there's, there's another whole bunch of prophecies being fulfilled in Revelation. And so in order to understand some of, the, some of the references and symbols that we see in Revelation, you have to have a good understanding of the Old Testament itself. Moreover, interpreting Revelation also requires you to be able to approach, approach Revelation in a way that you read it in its proper common sense way of reading it. You read it as a letter. It's, it is a letter written by a man to a bunch of churches. And so we are to read this in a in a literal, natural, and contextual way, to, to read Revelation as it is, to read it all the way through from beginning to end, and, and not, just, not just get stuck on a symbol and, and, and try to in, interpret the heck out of that one symbol, right? And try to make it relate to all these different things and connect it to all this stuff, right? When some people think that, you know, the, the, the mark of the beast as mentioned in Revelation is you know, maybe maybe that's the, the vaccine that's being passed around and stuff like that. Like that's 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 a huge jump. Right? Let's let's read the let's read Revelation as it is first. And when we do read symbols, let us try to interpret it within its own context. 
trying to understand what is God trying to say first um, with, within the context of the letter. And then interpreting Revelation also depends on your theology. You have to have some kind of theological framework to kind of work through a lot of what Revelation talks about. Um, and I'll get more into this as we get into the prophecies, but you, you'll soon find that a lot of theology of how we interpret some of the things going on in Revelation, a lot of the events, relates back to theology that's being built upon from the rest of scripture. And so you have to have a framework, a framework to help you understand, connect the dots together. And so you see that studying Revelation is not a simple task, right? You can't just read it on its own. If you never read the Bible at all, and you start in Revelation, you'll be lost. Yet at the same time, we're going to go through this together. So don't worry. I, I think it's going to be an awesome journey through Revelation. And, and actually, it's, it's not that hard when you just keep it simple. When you keep Revelation simple and you just read it for what it is, it's actually not that hard. And so what I'm going to do and what, what PT and I hope to do through this series is just to walk through the text, show you what the text says, point you back to different, um, different cross-references throughout the Bibles to, to support that text. And, and I'll show you the reason why I interpret the text the way I do. Right? And I'll, maybe I'll bring some other interpretations as well just to keep it balanced. Um, and so what we're, going to, what we're going to simply do is we're, we're just going to talk through Revelation. And we're going to work through, work our way through this book, text by text, passage by passage, chapter by chapter. Let me first share some of my personal convictions coming to Revelation, where I've landed when I've interpreted this. So that way you know where I'm coming from if I were to say something um, in my lessons about this. All right, so Gabe's convictions, you don't have to necessarily follow this. Um, you can totally hold a different view on some of these things. Um, but first of all, I'm, I'm a futurist when it comes to Revelation. Right, a futurist meaning I believe the events here talked about in Revelation are mostly all in the future. They haven't happened yet, right? And I'll talk about what you know what, what it means for other views on that. Uh, I'm a premillennial, meaning I believe in a literal understanding of most of the events coming here. Meaning there's actually a literal seven-year tribulation that's going to happen. There's a literal thousand-year millennium, um, millennium reign, Christ reigning on this earth after tribulation. And so on, right? And so those numbers are literal numbers. I believe in that, all right? So that's premillennial view. And in the mid-tribulation rapture, this is where I might differ from my premillennial friends. Um, I, I believe that the, the church will be raptured in the middle of the tribulation, not in the beginning, nor at the end, but in the middle. Um, and where that it falls in the middle, I'll explain later. Um, but I guess more specifically, I believe the tribulation or the rapture happens between the sixth and seventh seal. Um, and I think that's all talked about in the sixth chapter of Revelation. So if you don't know what these terms mean, don't worry. I'll cover them throughout this series. We'll, we'll, go, we'll go more in depth into this. Can't cover them all now tonight or else the sermon will go on for three hours. Um, but so I just want to share this so that, you know, if you want to take some time to research this yourself, I encourage you to. But I do want to first kind of talk a little bit about the interpretive approaches where I said I was a futurist. I want to share some of the other ways that people have approached Revelation. First, there are those who hold to a preterist pre view, meaning a past view. They believe that most of the prophecies in Revelation has actually been fulfilled. Fulfilled in AD 70 when Jerusalem fell and was destroyed by the Roman army. They called the Roman army the Antichrist, the beast, 
that came and that destroyed Jerusalem. And they, so they believe that many of these prophecies are fulfilled, actually. And the church that now exists is kind of part of the millennial reign of Christ. Right. And so that's, that's the preterist view. Then there's the historic, historicism. Um, and this believes that the prophecies in Revelation are unfolding. Uh, they unfolded throughout the course of church history and still continuing today. And so, again, talking about the Antichrist and the beast, they will, someone like Mark Luther actually called the, the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy, the, the Antichrist. And so he kind of he related the, the Antichrist in Revelation to the Roman Catholics of the time. And that's why you know, Martin Luther was battling so much to break away from them. Uh, and so there's this view that right now, Revelation is unfolding today. Then there's a third view called idealism. And the idealist view pretty much doesn't see time as a factor at all in Revelation. They read Revelation and they say these principles that we find here, they're timeless truths. And they can be applied to any Christian at any generation, any age. And so they don't, they don't really even care about these events for us, events in time. They just see them as, oh, here's a principle we can learn. Let's apply now to our, to our present time today, all right? And so that's the ideals view. I don't really understand how they got that. They, I think they just, they kind of read it very symbolically. Um, but that's, some people hold to that view. And then there's the futurism, the futurist view that I hold to, that most of these prophecies are still waiting to be fulfilled, right? So some of them have been fulfilled, but most of them are still in the future time. They have, there are events, future events that have yet to come. And so they, they haven't happened yet, but they will, right? So, so these are the four different interpretive approaches to Revelation. Um, and if you want to get deeper into why certain people hold these views, um, it actually goes outside of Revelation. People talk about stuff in Matthew 24, 25. People look at Daniel chapter 7 um, or chapter 9. Um, and, and so there's a lot of different places people look at and argue these things. Um, if you're interested, again, just go ahead and do your own study. Um, but I want to present this here on the forefront because I'm going to be talking about Revelation as future events. So with that, take your Bibles. Let us turn to Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to look at the first eight verses tonight. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This here, this passage that we're going to look at is an introduction to the book. And, and in these eight verses, we're going to find a brief summary of what this book is all about. And, and as I mentioned before, Revelation is, is the end, right? It's, it's the last book of the Bible. It's, it's actually the climax of the entire biblical narrative. It's, it's a realization that the entire movement of history, that the entire population of mankind, all of this, everyone from Adam to you to the billions of people that have ever existed, everything culminates to this ultimate end. And I'm going to call this story a redemptive history because God's redemptive history is God's story. Human history is really about God redeeming mankind. Right? And when we think about a story arc, or we think about movies, right, there, there's, there's definitely times in the movie where there's a turning point, right? A turning point in the movie where things change, you know, maybe the hero gains a new power, gains a new profound idea. And I, I, I argue that's like, the, that's like the apex of a storyline. And that's probably what we saw on the cross, right? The cross was a turning point in history where now salvation is available 
for all people. But the story is not over there yet. There's always a final battle, right? There's always a final battle after that turning point. And that's what I believe Revelation brings to us. It's a conclusion. It's the final battle. It's the final scene. And when we get in the story, if we were to draw the story arc this year, this towards the end, this is the conclusion. And so what we see here then in these first eight verses in Revelation chapter one, verses one through eight, we're going to examine these three features of this story arc, of this redemptive history. And these three features are the author, the work, and the goal. Let's go ahead and read the passage. Verse one it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on, his, on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The first feature of this redemptive story we're going to see here is the author. The author of redemptive history. And we know this author to be God. Right? And we see here first in verse 1, that this revelation here is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and revelation, the word itself, it means that it means an unveiling. An unveiling of something that was previously hidden. So it's not unveiling something that's like new. It's not like something new was created and just brought out to this world. It's something that was hidden and now unveiled. Unveiled for all to see. And the prophecy here is unveiling of Christ. Christ is what's being revealed here. And, and Christ was actually previously revealed, right? We, we know that from, from the gospel's accounts, right? The, the first coming Christ. But when Christ came the first time, he was actually in a way hidden, right? He, he, he gave up his, his divine powers or, and, and, or his divine um, position in heaven to be put on flesh, human flesh, and hidden in humanity, to, to be born as a baby, raised up in the backwater town, and to grow up as a carpenter's son, only to become a great teacher and end up at the cross as a criminal. This Christ, the Son of God, was hidden in humanity. But this prophecy here, this revelation of Jesus Christ that we're going to see here in this book is a different way of Christ being shown. This here speaks about the second coming of Christ, the future coming of Christ. And the second coming of Christ reveals Jesus Christ in his most glorious, majestic form. He will come down as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He will not be hidden. He will be revealed. 
And the author of this revelation is God. God is the one who sent the angels, right? It says that here in verse one. He's the one who sent the angels. He's the one who sent the angels to John, to the bond servants. The bond servants are us. We are God's bond servants. God sent this message through the angels to us. He re- he's the one who revealed Christ to us. And, and we see here that God is the one who's in control of all this. This is the message that he wants us to hear. And more specifically in this text, we see here that God sends this message, this, this revelation of Jesus Christ to his servant, John. Now, this John here is John the Elder, right? He's the one who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He's the one who wrote the Gospel of John. He is one of 12 disciples, and he's one of the clo- three closest friends to Jesus, right? He actually saw Jesus being transfigured on the mountain. Right? He had the privilege of seeing that. So this John was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. He was one of his closest friends. He's the, he was the one who took care of Jesus' mother when Jesus told the disciple whom he loved to take care of her on the cross, right? So this John was close to Jesus, and he was the last one of the 12 disciples to pass away. Many, many believe that he received this revelation from God while he was exiled away on an island. He was exiled away, and I believe he died of old age there. And so John received this testimony, and then it was passed on there from John. He wrote this letter to seven churches in Asia. And I'm talking about Asia here. We're talking about Asia Minor. Right, it was present-day Turkey. It is not necessarily Asia like China. We're not thinking China, Korea, Japan. We're, we're thinking about more, we're thinking about Asia Minor, close to Euro Asia, right? Turkey area. Um, and, and so he wrote to the churches there. This is where churches like Ephesus was, churches like Philippi, Colossae, right, in that area. And, and so he wrote to the churches there, and he he passed it on to the church. And it's, and it says here in verse three that this is for them to read aloud. They were to read this letter for all to hear. So, so it's given from, you know, God to the angels, to John, then John to the churches. And from the churches, they were to read it to the congregation. The word here about Jesus Christ, the revelation of Christ is being spread forth to those who hear. And it says that is blessed to hear these words and obey them. God is the one who began this. God's the one who spoke this prophecy. And if God's the one who speaks these words, that means these words are true. And these words will happen. And so this revelation refers then to a future event. And I mean, we see here it refers to a future event that may come at any time, right? At the end of verse 3, it says the time is near. The time is near. This is, this is something that's going to happen soon. This is something that... That, that may happen tomorrow. That may happen tonight. That may happen right now. There's a sense of imminence going on here. And that the word imminence is, is actually, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a regular term. It just means it's, you feel something's imminent. Something's about to, about to happen, but you don't know when. You don't know when it's going to happen, but it's coming. Um, but theologians use this word to talk about this second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. It's coming at any time. And we understand this feeling of imminence. We understand this feeling of of urgency, of of looking behind our back and being, you know, anticipating the next thing that's going to happen, right? 
I, I remember growing up, I, I used to sneak playing video games, right? And 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 then you'll you'll like jump up at the sound of a at the you know at, at a sound of a footstep or the boards, the house moving in the wind, thinking it's your parents catching you, or I in my case, my parents catching me playing video games at night, right? Or if you're playing video games while your parents are gone, the minute the garage door opens, you're just jumping up and trying to push everything away and look like you're doing your homework. Um, it, we understand this feeling of imminence. It's, a, it's, a, it's an anticipation. And yet at the same time, we also understand why we can ignore things that may be imminent. Right? We can easily ignore things that we know is about to come, but yet because it hasn't happened, we forget about it. Things like the earthquake that's supposed to happen in California that they keep talking about for years and years to come can happen any time is what they keep saying. So we better be prepared, right? But there is an aspect here of being prepared that comes with being, that come with the eminent of the coming of Christ. We are indeed to be prepared. We are indeed need to feel this certain urgency, this certain preparation that we aren't caught with our pants down. We are indeed prepared for the second coming of Christ. And so through this, throughout this book, we will get a sense of this eminence of Christ coming. We should feel that weightiness upon our hearts. Where do you stand today before God? And then we see here in the first three verses, that's blessed for those who read, who hear, and who obey these words. And it says in verse three, is blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. And this is the bookend of Revelation. It's actually repeated in Revelation chapter 22. In Revelation chapter 22, it says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And so we see here that there's importance of us to hear what Revelation has to say. To hear and to also obey it. Now, what we get here is that this is not just information. Right? This is not just God saying, this is what will happen. All right? It's going to happen, and you can just sit back and watch it like a TV show. No, that's, that's not what God is saying. He gave us this information for a reason. There's a purpose for all this. This letter here, this prophecy, this revelation is meant to put you to action today. And we see here that it's blessed for those to hear and to keep what is written. And this is about your life now. To live a blessed life now, a life, a life that's fruitful, a life that is filled with joy and blessing. This is about your life. Everything in Revelation is about your future. And so are you going to walk by faith, not by sight? Are you going to live a holy and patient life, a life that endures to the end, a life that is preparing yourself for the time to come? And so we see here that redemptive history is more than just about you being saved. Right? It's nice to be saved. Your salvation is great. And indeed, it is the greatest thing that can happen in your life. It's a turning point in your life, right? When you're saved, the day yeah, you come to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's a great day. You should remember that day. But your salvation, your salvation is part of a greater story. It's part of God's story. 
And God's story here is one where he is redeeming and vindicating his own name. God's story here is about him receiving the glory that he deserves. God's story is about him exercising justice against all sin and redeeming those whom he has called to repentance. We are just side characters in this story. Blessed side characters, joyful side characters to be experiencing all this. But God here is the main focal point. And so while this indeed is our future, we will see and soon find out that our future is all about God, not about us. And we see here that all of this is hidden to eyes of unbelievers, right? This, this revelation is only a revelation for those who believe in Christ. For those who are saved, our eyes are open to this truth. And we look upon this truth that we find here in Revelation, and while it's filled with terrors and judgment, we find joy and comfort reading it because our eyes are open to see that God gets his glory. And so the, 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 the key idea here from these first three verses is that we are to worship the God who speaks, the God who reveals all this to us, the God who reveals to us the promises that he made, how he's going to fulfill those promises, and exactly how he's going to redeem this world. It is a good thing that God speaks to us and does not leave us in the dark. We are to worship the God who speaks. The second feature of redemptive history that we see here is the work of redemptive history. The work of redemptive history. And, and this then, we we're going to take a look here at verses 4 to 6. And we see here, first of all, in verse 4, that this is a letter. This is an epistle, right? John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. And this is what he writes. He begins with a, reg, with a greeting that we find very familiar in, in all other New Testament letters, right? Grace to you and peace from him. Grace to you and peace from him. And what we see here is that this grace and peace is God's work. And it's coming from the Father, the Spirit, in the sun, and I'm going at because that's the order here that John has wrote, right? First, he says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is the timeless, eternal God. This is the Father, God the Father, who's timeless, who's, who, who's outside of time, who acts in, acts in past, present, and future tense, right? You can't box God up within time. He created time. He is... He, him who is, who was, and who is to come. And it says here, it says here, it says also from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Seven spirits. Now, who are these seven spirits? Well, I believe these seven spirits is the Holy Spirit. It's talking about God the Spirit. And, and the word seven here is, is actually just a symbolism to represent fullness. Right? This is the Holy Spirit in, in his fullness in the fullness of his ministry. And the reason why I get that is because the seven spirits show up again in chapter 3, verse 1. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says here that the seven, it talks about the seven spirits of God. Of God. And it shows up again in other places in Revelation, talking about this, these seven spirits that are before the throne. And, and all these other times it says they are the seven spirits of God. So this is God's spirit. It just even has some Old Testament references. And Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 talks about a spirit that, that, has these, uh, that has these different ministries. Seven spirits that have these different ministries. And, and, and yet, 
they're all one spirit of the Lord. And so in a way, the, the word seven here talks about the fullness of the spirit's functionality and ministry before God. And, and the word seven here, um, the, the number seven is important throughout Revelation. We see here already seven appearing twice because seven spirits, the fullness of, fullness of who the Holy Spirit is. But it's also we see here the seven churches of Asia. Right, seven churches of Asia. Now there are literally seven churches he's addressing. We'll see that later in Revelation. But in a way, we can also say that these seven churches of Asia represent the universal church as a whole. This is a letter written for all of us to hear. So we see here seven. And so we have here grace and peace from the Father and from the Spirit. And it says in verse five, from Jesus Christ, first of all, also from the Son. And here, John gives a longer description of who Jesus Christ is because this indeed is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is about him, about Christ. Right? And so we see here more about who Christ is, and we see that Jesus Christ is the true king who rules over the world. He is the true king. He is the focus of revelation. We see here first that he is the faithful witness and what the faithful witness here means is that Jesus Christ bears the testimony for truth and only the truth. He is the truth, the life, and the way. And when we say that Jesus Christ is the truth, that he is the faithful witness, he is indeed the perfect witness, the perfect testimony of the nature of God. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 3 says, he, Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the exact imprint of his nature. And so we see here, Jesus Christ becomes this perfect witness, this faithful witness of the nature of God. And then he says that he is also the firstborn of the dead. And when he's talking about the firstborn of the dead, he's not, this is not chronologically speaking, but it is talking about Jesus Christ in his preeminence, talking about Jesus Christ in his superiority, his dominance, his, the, the way he's incomparable. He is the first and none is like him. He is the firstborn, the premier son of God. And so we have here then, uh, a, a, we have then there a picture of Christ in his utmost uniqueness. He is the firstborn of the dead. And so this is saying that he is the, he is the one who's been resurrected in his glorified body and the rest of us are to follow him. He is the prototype. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent, that he might be superior above all else. And then we see that Jesus is also the ruler, the ruler of kings on the earth. He is the sovereign king over the world. Psalm 89, verse 27, God says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So we see here Jesus being mightier than all the nations. He is the one king who will rule. He will carry a name above all your names because Jesus Christ is Lord. And we have here a picture being revealed of Christ in his most majestic form. And so grace and peace are bestowed upon believers through then, through then Christ. 
from Christ. And, and there's more description of who Christ is. Right? When we see here in the following paragraph that Christ is the one who brought us into the kingdom of God. And we find that our redemption is found in Christ alone. We see here in verse 6, or sorry, the end of verse 5, it says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And so Christ's blood frees us from the chains of sin. Jesus Christ shed his blood for us so that we may be free. This here is a reminder. It's a reminder of the cost of sin. And that the sacrifice Jesus made was the greatest sacrifice ever made. It was a ransom for us. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 says, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, by the mean, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus Christ here freed us from the chains of sin, the guilt that would have condemned us. And more than that, it says that Jesus Christ here also redeemed us to be a kingdom of priests. Be a kingdom of priests. And this, this is an amazing statement here, right? It says that he made us. He made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. This this means that we, we are saved more than just to look pretty. We're not just trophy cases in, for God. We have a purpose. We have a purpose to worship God, to usher nations to know God. We are the kingdom of his priests. We are to know God and to exalt him. This is, this here we see that God's calling us to worship him. And that is our purpose. That is our function. And this, and, and what we get here is that this king, Jesus Christ, is not just some king that stands far from his people. This Jesus Christ is one who died for you so that when you worship him, you know him personally. You know him as your Lord and Savior and as your friend. And so we are called here to be king of priests. And so we see here that our salvation is more than just being saved. It's more than just getting a ticket into heaven. Our salvation is about glorifying and worshiping God, worshiping Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 22 says, But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We are indeed believers. We, are, we live the Christian walk. We walk the Christian walk. Not just so we can gain eternal life, but so we can spend eternity with Christ. The end goal of redemption is not our salvation. but It's God's glory. And God here, when working throughout history, ever since Eve and Adam and Eve took that fruit, he's been working working tirelessly to build up his kingdom, to save his people. And just think for a moment the trajectory of your own life. What are you working for? What is the purpose that you live for? Right, to, to pursue anything else other than God's glory is, will only lead to dissatisfaction and discontentment. 
God has worked in your life. He has saved you from your sins. And he has also empowered you so that you have great and grander purpose than to live for this world. You get to live for a holy, almighty God, the king of the universe. You are priests of the God most high. And so we see here that we are to worship the God who saves, the God who redeems, the God who works, the God who's active in our lives, in this world, the one who is working throughout history to save his people. This is our great God. And then third, the aim of redemptive history. The aim of redemptive history, we see that redemptive history is working towards this point, the time when Christ returns. We see here in verse 7 that the return of Christ, the return of Christ will happen, first of all, with the clouds. Christ will, des will descend from above, and he will be with the clouds. And, and this is a reference to other prophecies that Jesus himself made. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, Jesus says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The, the same thing was said to the disciples when they were look, when Jesus was ascending to heaven. When Jesus said to heaven, the disciples just kept looking up. They're like, is he still there? Is he still there? And then the angel appeared and showed up. And, he told, and this is what he said. This is what the angel said to the disciples. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will descend with the clouds. And so this here in verse 7, he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is talking about the return of Christ. And it says then that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of him. Every person here will see Christ and mourn. The nations here will mourn in repentance for Christ. We see here that Jesus Christ, when he returns, this is not a quiet return. This is not one that's hidden. This is one that, all, that every eye will see. And, and the, the, the Old Testament reference here that's happening says here that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And that word pierced, even those who pierced him, brings us back to this Old Testament reference found in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, God says this to Israel. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they, will, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. In Zechariah, the Israelites, the, the Jews, are given this, and they're the ones who pierce Christ on the cross. And when they see, when the Jews, after rejecting him all these years, when Israel sees Jesus returning from the clouds, they will realize that their rejection of him was wrong. They will mourn in repentance. 
they who pierced him on the cross will realize they pierced and rejected the Son of God. And they will mourn in repentance over their sins. And more than that, it says here that not only will Israel mourn, but all the tribes of the earth will join in that mourning. And we see here that this repentant mourning will extend to every nation. And this is not saying that every single person will, will be repentant. But it's saying that there will at least be someone from every nation, of the believer, who will see Christ return and will repent and be saved. And yes, their salvation comes with joy. But there's a sense of mourning there. They mourn because they realize they have sinned before God. In other words, they, they, come, to a reckon, they come to a reckoning, an understanding that they too have to answer to this God. That God is the center of everything. That, that everything about what they were doing with their lives before this coming of Christ was wrong. And they realized it was all meaningless that Christ is the one that matters. Because that's what Revelation is about. Right? Revelation is about Christ. Christ is at the center of everything. And so Revelation is teaching us, he's teaching you, reminding you that your life is not about you. Your life is not about what you can accomplish. Your life is not about what you can achieve. Your life is about God. And that makes all the difference. Your life is about God. And, and so when we see our sins, we should mourn over our sins because we realize that we have not made it about God. And through that repentance, we find joy because God is a merciful God who forgives. We see here that redemptive history reveals that God has been at the center of everything. At the center of everything. He is the beginning. He is the end. And that's what it says here, right? In verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So the beginning and the end. I'm the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God is the one who upholds all things, controls every event. He is the beginning because he created all things. He is the end because he will judge all things. God, God sovereignly dictates everything so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Christ as Lord. There is no other God. God knows you as well. He knows all that you're doing in your life. There is no other God. And so we are to worship the God who is. Because that's who he is. He is the God, the only God. We are to worship God as God. The only God who is. And so this is God. This is Christ revealed to us. This is, this is whom we're called to serve, whom we're called to obey, whom we're called to worship with our lives. This is God and Christ in his most majestic, glorious form. We're going to see more of that. We're going to see God as a merciful God. We're going to see God as a judge. We're going to see God as a redeemer. And God as a king. The entire book of Revelation is about who God is and how he will conclude his redemptive history, his work 
throughout mankind. And so we see here that the big idea from this passage is that you are redeemed by Jesus Christ to hear and obey God, who is the beginning and the end of all things, and to worship the King, whose glory will be known throughout the world. What an amazing God that we have. To end, I have three applications. Three applications from this text. And the first one, first one is this. You are saved with a purpose. You are saved with a purpose. You, you are not saved by accident. You didn't just fall into church. You're not worthless before the eyes of God. And I know at a time like this, sometimes we may feel like life is meaningless. We may struggle with wondering with, you know, why am I doing all this schooling? Does this even matter? What was all have to do with my future, my life? And, 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 and we can struggle with that feeling, right? You can easily struggle with feeling like this all means nothing. I want to tell you that you are saved with a purpose, that your life does indeed mean something. You have a purpose, and that purpose is to worship God. Christ saved you so that you can become a priest of the Lord Most High. That is a great calling. You are saved with a purpose. And so proclaim Christ as Lord and worship God. Second, Blessed is those who hear and who keep this word. Those who are those who listen and keep and obey God. Listen to God. Obey him alone. And this is important to hear because in a world like today, we hear so many voices. Voices all around. We hear tweets after tweets and we're scrolling through Instagram or whatever other platform you guys may be on. And and there's all these voices out there telling you what you should do, what you should buy, who you should be. There's only one voice that matters. Only one voice that remains faithful and true. And that's the voice of Christ. He is the faithful witness and the king above all kings. Obey God's word. Obey him and you will find blessing in your life. And then... Pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. And pursue holiness not tomorrow, not next week, not after you graduate, not after you find a job, not after you get married. Pursue holiness now, today. Because the time is near. Remember the tone that we're going to see throughout Revelation. It's, it's one that's emphasized by how soon Christ will return. It can be can be next week, can be tomorrow, can be right now. Christ will return. And will you be prepared then to meet your Savior? Do not delay pursuing holiness. Pursue it today. Pursue Christ now. And so we see here Jesus Christ, the great almighty one, the one who died on the cross, that 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 allowed us to be saved all of this is coming to an end jesus did not just die rise again and went off to heaven and said all right we'll see you later jesus had a plan to return and we will see that throughout our study in revelation and let us continue to remember 
as we study through this book, it's about God. It's about Christ. It's about coming to see that when we when we make more of God and less of ourselves, we actually become more fulfilled, more blessed, more joyful, more content with our lives because God is all that matters. God is the reason why we exist. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, God, for your love that covers us with the blood of Christ that redeems us. We thank you, Lord, that you're sovereign over all things, that you're in control of every minute details of our life. You know the number of hairs on our head. Lord, you are indeed all-knowing and all-powerful, and you are good. Lord, thank you for being a good God, for saving your people, for showing your justice, and for redeeming us so that we may spend eternity with you. Lord, you are indeed an awesome holy God. Let us, let us then worship you. So thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you, God, for this time. May we continue then uh, to fellowship together, to encourage one another, to spur one another on so that we may endure to the end. Let us come together now and be as one body, one fellowship that seeks to honor you. Be with us during our community groups. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.